you'll just think, oh, we've heard some of this already. And isn't it great when God does that because it means he's really got something to say to us. He's getting our attention. And last week we began to look uh, in the book of Haggai and we're going to carry on with that story at exactly that thing about how God got the people's attention. And so the story is that the people of Israel had been in captivity in Babylon for 40 to 70 years and were sent back by the king of Persia who had taken over Babylon, sent, sent back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And they went back with enthusiasm and excitement and they built the altar and then they started to build the foundations of the temple. And within about a year to 18 months, the foundations were finished and there was a great celebration. But then, and this always happens when you build something for the Lord, opposition came. Opposition came. If you're building something for the Lord, I can pretty much guarantee that opposition will come. And what you do with that opposition is really, really important. Because the temptation sometimes with opposition is to think, I must have got it wrong. I must have got it wrong. It's my fault. I've misheard. I better stop. I better go down another road. That's the temptation we feel when opposition comes. Now, for these guys, opposition was in the form of the people in the nations around who came and said, stop building that. It was very physical, in-their-face opposition. And sometimes we might face that. You might face that sort of thing when you're at work and you're trying to stand out for what you know is right and you're getting people saying to you, no, we're not doing it that way. And you just know that, God, I've got to stand my ground here. It might be really in your face like that. Or it might be a lot more subtle. Because it says, isn't it, in the New Testament that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And sometimes the best way that the enemy manages to take us off of, our, of God's priorities for us is he whispers and sows seeds of doubt in your mind. Really? Wow, you're not doing very well, are you? Still in that same position? Battling away at the same things? Don't seem to be going very far, do you? You've got that wrong, haven't you? Except he doesn't usually talk to you like that. It's usually he talks to you with the word I. So you're saying in your mind, you've got, I'm not doing very well here. I don't feel I'm getting anywhere. I'm going around in circles. I'm, I'm, I'm. But it's still the enemy who is sowing those seeds of doubt. When we build something for the Lord, whether that is building something in our own lives because we feel he's called us to live a certain way or do a certain thing or go down a certain path, or whether it is in our corporate life as a church, whenever we build something for him, we will hit opposition. And let's see how God deals with his people when they hit opposition. And they don't react that well on this occasion. Because when they hit opposition, the people of Israel stop the work. It's really understandable. They've got all these guys in their faces. And so they stop the work. And they don't go back to it. And they stop the work for about 12 to 15 years. And then into this, this period when they go back to just doing their own stuff, it says in the Bible that they were working on their panelled houses. They were working on adorning their houses. 
They were working on their own priorities. Their priorities had shifted away from the temple back to making a nice life for themselves because they'd hit a bit of opposition. And into this comes the, the prophet Haggai and brings God's word. And you know, sometimes we talked last week about God creates a moment every now and then. And he'll create a moment when he'll say, shall I just interpret for you what's been happening in your life? Because that's exactly what he does here. God says to the people, you've been working really hard, but you don't seem to be achieving much, do you? Mm, no. You're earning money, but it feels like there's holes in the bag and the money's just pouring through. Yeah, it feels like that. And God says, yeah, that's me. I'm the one behind that. I've brought the famine. I've cut the holes in your pockets. You are working hard. You're building your panelled houses, but you're feeling dissatisfied, aren't you? Yeah, I'm behind that. Why? Because he's jealous for his people. Because he's jealous for them. And so into this, Haggai comes and he interprets what's happening. And let's then pick up then from chapter, in chapter 1, how the people respond when God points out that their frustration and their lack of resources and the feeling that they're working hard but the money's pouring out of their pockets is all because they've turned away to their own stuff. And this is what the people, how the people respond and what God says. So verse 12 of chapter 1, and then we'll go into a little bit of chapter 2. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, so these are the two guys that are leading the people of Israel at this time, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came, and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And in the seventh month, so this is a month later, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the way you've spoken to us already. Please continue to do that. Stir our hearts, strengthen us, encourage us for what's ahead. Fill us with your joy. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. There seems to be an equation here in terms of how the people respond and what God does. So the first thing that they do, it says, is that they fear the Lord. When they hear this, when they realise that actually the last 12 years we've been building our own houses and it's felt like such hard work and we've taken our eyes off the temple and it's felt like our money's just going through our pockets and then God says, yes, it's me. I'm behind that and I'm jealous for you. And then there's this sort of equation They fear the Lord, that's the first thing they do. They obey and they fear the Lord, that's the first thing they do. Do you know, sometimes when we realise that God has convicted us about something in our lives and is saying, you've taken your eye off the ball, you've shifted, sometimes we can feel like we've got to wait for a feeling before we do something about it. But actually the first thing that we do is we come with fear and reverence. We say, God... Yeah, you're right, and I was wrong, and I'm sorry. That's the first thing we do. We don't wait for a feeling. We don't wait for, oh, I'm just waiting for the sense of the Lord to... No. Once we sense his conviction, we're called to obey and repent and come with reverence and fear him and say, God, you're right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. I don't know how many times you've done that. I've done that loads of times, I can tell you. Absolutely loads of times I've done that. The way it works is exactly how we read in this passage because the way God deals with his people here is exactly how he deals with us. He does not change in the way he deals with us. And so when we come and we recognise, God, you were right, I was wrong, I'm sorry, he then says... I'm with you. That's what happens. When you read this, it says the people feared the Lord, the people obeyed, and the word came through Haggai again, and God said, I'm with you. Do you know, there have been times when I have been in tears, when I've just sensed his presence, when I've come in repentance. I don't know if that's happened for you, and you've sensed, oh, I've messed up. I've taken my eye off him. I've been far too concerned with my own stuff. And actually, as I look back on it, I realise I wasn't happy doing that stuff anyway. And then you come back. And you say, God, you were right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And does he rub your nose in the dirt? No, he doesn't. He says, I'm with you. What does I am with you mean? It means we're okay. We're okay. You and me, we're okay. You're back. We're back. We're synced. 
That's what he says. We don't have to go through some prolonged type of penitence. I'm not having a go at the Catholic Church here, but it's not about how many Hail Marys you say before you can get back in. As soon as we get on our knees and say, God, you were right, I was wrong, I've messed up, I'm sorry. I want to turn around, I want to go back to the temple again, I want to go back to what you had for me, I, I, I want to put that aside again, come back. He says, yeah, we're synced. I'm with you. I'm with you. And then what does it say that he does? The people fear the Lord. He says, I'm with you. And then he stirs up the spirit. He stirs up the spirit. They've come back. They've said, we're sorry, God. We're going to put our, our shoulder to the wheel again with the temple. He says, I'm with you. And then he stirs up the spirit. You know, sometimes when you come back to him and when we come back to him and we are aware we've just taken our eye off the ball, we're not sure what those last 12 years were about. We've recognised that we've been giving ourselves to something over here when he really wanted us to be giving ourselves to him. We've prioritised that and we come back and we're repentant and we look at the wasted years behind or the wasted year or the wasted months or whatever it is and we think, oh, boy... I've done it again. Yeah, God, I thank you that you're with me, but boy, have I done it again. And Is there a hope? Is there any hope that I can get back on track? Is there any hope that I can do something purposeful, that I can somehow make up for what's been lost? And God stirs up the spirit inside. Notice what he does. He stirs up the spirit of the leaders and he stirs up the spirit of all the people together. There's something about needing to be together if you want God to stir up your spirit again. If you've been far from him, if you've been a little bit away, if you're aware, when we become aware that we've messed up a bit, but we still don't feel any different, there's something about being together. And by being together, he will stir up your spirit. If you run, and if you try and be on your own, then it's unlikely that you will sense the stirring of your spirit. Or if you do, it will, it will dissipate really quickly. That's why in Hebrews, the writer encourages the people he's writing to not to give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. He's recognising that some have been in the habit of giving up meeting together. And he says, no, keep meeting together. And all the more as you see the day approaching, the day of eternity, the day when it's all over, the day when it's all over for each of us, whether that's death or whether that's him coming back before we die. He says, that, that day, all the more as you see the day approaching, don't give up meeting together, stir one another up. God stirs us for the work when we're together. If you sometimes think, gosh, I'm not, you know, church life just feels a bit difficult. I never really feel that enthusiastic about it. Well, probably the problem, part of the problem is, is this catch-22 where we withdraw ourselves a bit and then we think, yeah, but I never feel like... And you shouldn't do things out of duty, should you? No, God wants you to do things out of joy. And, and, but, you know, it feels to me like duty, so I just, you know, I, don't, I tend not to get involved in that. I put a bit of a wall around myself there. Well, no wonder you don't feel stirred up because what God does is he stirs us up when we are together.
It says a little bit later, the spirit was in the middle, in the midst, in the middle. So if you know that that's a tendency for you, and let me, let me give you a confession, it's a tendency of mine. It's a tendency of mine. I like my own space. And it's no wonder then, actually, that part of the time during my sabbatical, I struggled. I did. Because I wasn't with you. I was visiting places and I was seeing some friends and lots of good stuff, but actually there were some parts of the sabbatical when I struggled. And do you know what it felt like God finally nailed for me once and for all? It's not good to be alone, is it, Phil? No, Lord, it's not good to be alone. Now, I've been on a journey with that for some years, and my, my favourite quote, I'm not the man I wish to be, I'm not the man I hope to be, but thank God I'm not the man I used to be. That's what John Newton said. And I'm on a journey with it, but I, I know it can be a tendency, if I'm not really, really careful, just to get into my own space and isolate myself a little bit. And then it becomes this cycle because then I don't feel stirred up to be about his work particularly anyway. And, you know, no, of course you don't. Because he stirs us up when we're together. God wants a people, plural. And unless we place ourselves in the midst of the people, then we're unlikely to feel stirred up. And then the whole cycle begins again. What happens is this. We withdraw a bit. We don't feel so stirred up anymore. We take our eye off building the temple. We start building our panelled house. And then God jealously comes after us. Don't think that God just came after people in the Old Testament yeah, he came after Jonah. He came after Moses. Moses runs away, burning bush. Oh, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. Oh, right, okay, you're here, God. Right, I thought you were just back there, but you're here. Right, okay. <laughs> he does exactly the same with Jonah. We heard about that this morning. Can't run f- you can run from God, but you can't hide. That's the truth of it. And, you know, we then see a beautiful, beautiful example of it in the New Testament. It's one of my most favourite passages that just shows the tender-heartedness of God in the Lord Jesus. Where after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Peter and the disciples say, let's go fishing. Let's go back to what we knew. Let's go back, shall we? Don't know where this is going. Let's run away. Let's go, fish. go back fishing. It's what we knew. It's what we used to do. Let's go back there. And who appears on the beach? Jesus. And a bit like in this story, when Haggai tells the people, feel like you've had holes in your pockets? Jesus calls out to them on the sea, on the lake, got any fish? Got any fish? Caught anything? (laughs) No, we've been fishing all night, we've not caught a thing. Ah. It's because I'm after you. Nets on the other side. Do you want to follow me? Nets on the other side. Ah, Can't pull them in. What does he do? When they get back to the shore, what does he say? Didn't you believe in me back then? All that stuff I told you. I told you this was going to happen. Haven't you got any inner resolve at all? 
No, he says, um, I've cooked your breakfast. Come have breakfast with me. Isn't it wonderful? When God convicts us, we've just not, not, we've not been building the temple, been about our own stuff, been isolating ourselves a little bit. And he doesn't nag. And he doesn't condemn. He points out the folly of our ways. He brings conviction. He tells us, you know all that stuff that you were doing? And you kept doing it, didn't you? But if you're really honest, it didn't seem to be quite cutting the mustard. It didn't seem to be bringing wholeness and satisfaction. Yeah, that was me. I did that because I want you. You're mine. I will have you back. I am jealous for you. How tender he is with us. This is how God deals with his people back in the Old Testament. This is how he dealt with the disciples on the beach. This is how he deals with us. He is so tender with us. But he will not let you just go about your own stuff. He will not. If you're going down a path and you just know, I know this isn't right. I know this isn't best. I know I'm gradually withdrawing. I'm just, I just come when I, when I have to, really. Because I'm, I'm after this thing. I think this is going to... Don't think that you can carry on like that without him pulling you back. The thing that's at stake is how much of your life you waste doing it. Because he will have you back. And he'd rather have you back sooner than later. Cooperate. So he stirs up the spirit, and then he does something that I just think is so wonderfully tender. In the next chapter, we read, didn't we, that in a month after they'd gone back to work, God speaks again. They've been back at work a month. The foundations are finished, but they've started to build on the foundations. And then God shows how much he understands how they feel. He says, Who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You see, they'd come back and they'd started to rebuild the temple, but actually it was nothing like the temple of Solomon that had been destroyed 50, 60 years before. And in fact, in the book of Ezra that tells the story about this, it says that when they'd finished building the foundations of the new temple and there was all this rejoicing, that the sound of wailing and tears was as loud as the sound of the rejoicing. And the wailing and the tears came from the people who remembered what the old temple used to look like. They remembered it. They told their children about that temple, that great temple that Solomon had built and that the Babylonians had completely flawed. And they told their children about it, and they come back and they see the reality of it in ruins, and they see what they're building, which in comparison just looks different, and they weep, and they're discouraged. They've gone back to work. They've been obedient. God stirred their spirit again. But you know what this shows? God empathizes with us. 
sometimes we can feel like when it's hard and we feel rubbish about it being hard, that there's something wrong with that. And, and then what that leads to is, these tr is triumphalism. You know, when people say, oh, yeah, but come on, God's in it, let's keep going. And there's a sense in which, of course, that sort of encouragement is great. But do you know what? When you're feeling miserable and a little bit downcast and the job just seems so big and we've only just started still and it still feels small and it's still hard work, do you know what? You don't have to pretend with God that you feel differently because he empathises. He understands. He speaks to the people who remembered it how it was. And he says, it's nothing in your eyes, isn't it? I understand. Do you know he understands you? When you're a bit miserable because things didn't quite work out the way you expected. And when it still feels like you've got such a long way to go, when it still feels like church is at its beginnings and it's still, it's still quite tough to build this. And do you know what? It would be just so much better if I was somewhere else and it's just tricky. There's not an established kids' work because there aren't enough people to run it and oh, it just all, it feels a bit tricky. Do you know what? Does God say, come on, get yourself together. It's not what's important here. No. He says, I understand. I understand. He empathizes. The God of the universe understands how you feel. He understands. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't just give you a let's fight them on the beaches speech. He, he says, I know how you're feeling. I know. It's wonderful when you know that God knows how you're feeling. And you know, sometimes I don't think we tell him enough. It's like he's sitting there waiting. And sometimes we don't tell him. We feel like he's not that interested or we feel like I... It's, it's too minor a thing for me to tell him, Lord, I'm just feeling really nervous about today, about what's going on. I've got this presentation to make. I just feel No, tell him. He knows anyway. Tell him. And you will feel the empathy of God. It says that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is able to empathize with you and to sympathize with you. But here's the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is when you just feel what someone's going through and it really affects your heart. And empathy is understanding it and then being able to reach down and help somebody else up. And that's what God is like. He's not overwhelmed by your feelings. On those days when you just are feeling overwhelmed and you think... I'm just going to tell God he's going to think I'm pathetic. No, he's not going to think you're pathetic. He knows how you feel. But he's also the one who can reach down and pull you up. That's exactly what he does. Who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? There's the sympathy and the empathy. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people. Work, for I'm with you. My spirit remains in your midst.
There it is again. You see that stuff about stirring up the people in the previous chapter when they're together? And what does it say about the spirit? My spirit remains. When you're in your panelled houses, my spirit's with you in each of your houses. Now he says, my spirit's with you in the middle. When you're together in the middle. Fear not. And then he gives them vision of what's going to happen. And he tells them, yeah, you're part of something that's going to be so much bigger than this. Yeah, you're battling away at the foundations. And I know how you feel. I know how you feel. But this is about something so much bigger. This is about something where my glory will be, where my presence will be. This will be a place where the nations will come. And right at the end of Haggai, or towards the end, in that last section of the section we just read, and in this place I will give peace. I'll give peace, I'll give well-being, I'll give wholeness, I'll give shalom here in this place. Will you, God? Yeah, but we're just putting another, we're just putting another brick down and, and look at the pile of bricks we've still got to go and this timber still coming down from the mountains and we're just, yeah, and in this place I will bring peace. I won't bring peace in your panelled houses, but I'll bring peace here. Keep building here. This is where I'm going to bring peace. And then he reassures them about his resource. The silver and the gold's mine. What are you worrying about? The silver and the gold is mine. And it's very interesting. Do you know what happens? What happens is as they continue to build, there's a little bit more opposition. And the guys from the nations around, they write back to the king who's back in Babylon. And it's a new king. It's not King Cyrus anymore. It's King Darius. King Darius didn't know anything about it. Didn't know about sending the people of Israel back. And so the guys in the nations around, they send back to King Darius and they say, did you know the Jews, they've started building the temple again. Who gave them authority to do that? And what does Darius do? Darius goes back through the archives and he finds the document that's set from King Cyrus. And the document says, send them back to rebuild the temple and give them everything they need. And then Cyrus writes back to those local, uh, those, those local leaders. And he says, no, they were told they could do it. And what's more, you've got to give them everything they need to do it. You've got to provide it. The silver and gold are mine, says the Lord. The silver and gold are mine. And I'll bring the nations in here. And this is where my peace, peace will reside. There's a promise over the church that it's the place where his peace will reside. Do you know, sometimes we can get really discouraged. Sometimes we look around and we think, yeah, but there's the mosque just up the road. You know, I drove past that this morning. I watched more people going in there than have come in here this morning. And just for a moment, I thought, oh God, what's this about? And God says, no, my peace resides here doesn't reside there. My peace resides here. It's where it resides. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged if it just feels like, oh, it's still a bit small. Oh, I remember being back in that other church I was in and, oh, that was a, oh, that was a bigger temple. No. No, the nations will come here and the silver and gold are mine and here my peace will reside. And at the beginning of this new year, 
he presents us, like I said last week, with another opportunity to consider our ways and to consider where we'll build and whether we'll build the panelled houses or whether we'll build for him. And you can go off and build your panelled houses. You can make that choice. But he won't let you do it for long. So my encouragement to us, right at the start of this new year, keep building. He is with us. He is in the middle. When we're together, he's in the middle. The silver and the gold are his. And in this place, his peace will reside. Amen. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the unchangeable God. And sometimes we, we do look at stories from the Old Testament and think that things were so different back then. But actually, you're, you teach us that you don't change. And you deal with your people now just as you dealt with them back then. You're jealous for your people. You were, you were back then and you are now. You're tender with your people. You were tender with them back then and you're tender with us now. And uh, at the start of this new year, Lord, we do come to you. We've sung that we want to surrender. And actually, for most of us, when we do look back and look at parts of our lives when we've not done that, we, we can say, yeah, God, you're right. It does feel like we give ourselves to stuff and it, it, just, it just turns to dust. It doesn't satisfy like we were hoping. It doesn't deliver. And you say, no, come back. Come back into the midst. My spirit is in the middle. I will stir your spirit when you are together. And so, Father, we want to commit ourselves to you again. We want to say we want to follow you. But we want to do what Peter did. We want to follow you. And when you spoke to him and he said, well, what about John? And you said, don't worry about him. You follow me. And so, Father, help us not to compare ourselves with others. Help us not to fall into the trap this year of looking at what happens with our colleagues and the world around us and thinking, that's, that's how it should be. That's the norm for me. Why, why aren't I going down that way? That, that's what everybody else is doing. Help us, Lord, to just be realigned, to be aware of when we begin to shift our priorities. And they can shift so quickly and so easily. And yet, Father, we don't want to give ourselves to wasted years of building panelled houses and leaving what you want us to do undone. Uh, so we commit ourselves to you again at the start of this new year. And we pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Don't lead us, O oh God, into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For the kingdom, the power, 
and the glory are yours forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.